Our conference this afternoon is on a topic called the divine names. And what we understand by the term names is not what we typically mean in English. It doesn't mean a proper name, but really any term or word applied to God. Uh, so let me just give some examples of divine names right here on the board. If you just say God is or God is being, there's a way in which you're applying a name to him, especially if you say God is being. You're applying a term to God, some form of to be. <clears throat> or if you say God is good, you're applying the term good to God. Good can then be called a divine name. God knows. God is wisdom. God is love. God causes. In all these cases, you're naming God in the sense that you're saying things of God. And where we get divine names and how we use them is one of the great, great questions of the philosophical and theological tradition in which Aquinas moves. So one of the great questions is, do the names, do words, mean the same thing when applied to God as when applied to things around us? And how do we say yes or no one way or the other? How would you even go about answering such a question? So what we're going to do today is begin with an important distinction that Aquinas draws going all the way back to Aristotle between three different types of terms, univocal terms, equivocal terms, and analogical terms. And in order to explain this important distinction, Professor Michael Gorman is going to come up and make all things clear. <laughs> this is a sort of duo presentation, this one. Hmm? Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so what I want to do is give a um, explain this sort of classic distinction. Aquinas uses this. It comes, he borrows a lot of this stuff from Aristotle. So there's three main words that you gotta know, and then I have to dance around and walk, explain a lot of things. So so um, the three key things are univocal, equivocal, and analogous. So these are ways of using words. Um, but before I, and, and, they, and this is like a three-way contrast. Before I present this though, I just want to mention briefly, there's another way that Aquinas sometimes uses analogous. It's not this, but something else. Um, so he'll call something an analogy or analogous and it has a different meaning altogether. Uh, not altogether, but somewhat different. So consider something like this. Think of, um, the shape of a statue, and think of the structure of, you know, like a symphony, a symphonic movement or something like this. Now, there's a way in which the shape is to the statue as the structure of the piece is to the piece, okay? So there's a sort of analog analogy here, right? So if you call this A and this B and this C and this D, then you say A is to B, kind of, sort of, as C is to D, you see? And the, oh, this kind of thinking, it's actually used a lot 
Aquinas and Aristotle do this kind of thing. So and some of the analogies are, are, they push it pretty far, right? So like the shape of a statue is kind of like the soul of an animal. Like, really? Well, <laughs> yes, as long as you understand it's kind of the same and kind of different, right? So that kind of thinking is actually very important, but it's not what we're talking about here. So, but I do want to mention that that is the way people use the word analogy. There's nothing wrong with it. But it's not the main thing that's relevant for us in talking about divine names. Although, you could deploy it in talking about divine names. So, I, I don't know exactly what he's going to say. So, But, like, that's teed up now, too. But, um, <laughs> having said that, I'm going to talk about this. Okay. Now, the first thing to say is that, strictly speaking... Oh, an individual word is not univocal or equivocal. What's, uh, what happens is you have uses of words, and you can use a word, and when, it's, when a word is used two times, then those two times might be, they might be used univocally or equivocally or analogically. But just one word all by itself. It's not used in any of these ways. It's just being used. So the first thing to think about... Um, is univocal. So if we say Socrates is human and we say Plato is human, the word human is being used in exactly the same way. So if we said Socrates is human, you'd say right. And if I said and Plato is human too, right, you wouldn't go well, in what sense, right? Just the same sense. There's no issue. So you mean exactly the same thing. Okay? Now, equivocal are when the same word is used twice and they're utterly different senses. They have nothing to do with one another. So some standard examples. Think of the word bank, right? There's like the bank of the river and there's the bank where you put your money. Or there's a bat, right? It could mean a, like a little flying mouse, or it could mean a thing that you hit a baseball with. It's kind of what a bat is. That's what they call them in German. Um, um, uh, yeah, or it's a thing that you hit a baseball with, right? So, um, or bridge and bridge, the card game and the thing that go look over the river. I looked this up once. There's not even like uh, a fanciful connection. It's just some weird linguistic coincidence. So. So these are just three, oh look at me, I'll begin with B. Um, um, these are three things where the word is very, quite commonly used in two ways that are utterly distinct from one another. They just have nothing to do with one another. So those are equivocal uses of the words. Okay, now then, can I erase this? Okay, now I want to talk about the last one. This is analogical words, now you can, or analogical uses of terms. You can already sort of guess where this is going to go, right? It's sort of in between exactly the same and utterly different. The uses are different, but they're related. So you have two uses of a word, and the meanings are different but related. So um, I'm going to give Aristotle's classic and slightly disgusting example um, of healthy. And healthy is said of a dog, and of food, and of urine. <laughs> now, when you say that the dog is healthy, you mean, you know, its, it's temperature is just about right, it's got the correct blood pressure, 
you know, its heart is beating correctly, all of its enzymes are doing all their enzymatic things that they're supposed to be doing. All of that stuff, you know what it means for a dog to be healthy, okay? Now, let's say you say food is healthy, like I don't know what's good food for dogs, horse meat or something like that, right? You know what's a classic thing? Alpo, whatever. So, what does it mean to say that Alpo is healthy? It, here's what it doesn't mean. It has good blood pressure, all of it's right. It doesn't mean any of those things. The food is not healthy in that sense. It's not in good physiological condition, ready to exercise. So it must mean something else. Now, of course, it means that it contributes to the health of the dog. So the sense of healthy that this has is related to this other sense. So the senses are different, but related. Same with urine, right? If someone, if there's a healthy urine sample, it doesn't mean it's in good physical condition, right? But it means it indicates that the animal that it came from is in good physical condition. So this time it's a sign of health, right? Does that make sense so far? So the senses are different, but they're related. It's not just some wacky coincidence that we call Alpo healthy food for dogs. Um, is that still the name of a dog food? It was when I was a kid, you know, on, on TV, uh, so I don't know. Um, but anyway, yeah, so it's supposed to be a brand of dog food. Sorry. <laughs> for, the, for the recording, I'll just say the name of some other dog food and you can splice it in. So, now, so that's, the, that's like the, the main point, but I want to make one further distinction about two types of analogy here, and it ends up being important for talking about God. So, I'll leave that. Okay. Let's start with the food and the urine, right? So, healthy food, whoops, healthy urine. Now, these two uses of the word healthy are analogous to each other. But the way that analogy works, the reason they're analogous to each other, the reason the meanings are similar to each other, is because there's some third thing that they're both related to, namely healthy in the sense of healthy dogs. So because they are both related to this, that's why they're related to each other. So this is called the analogy of many to one. Because this is the many, you may not think two is many, but anything more than one is many, okay? So this is the many, and that's the one. And they're related back to it. So that's analogy of many to one. But there's another kind of analogy, too. And that is just this, where you can compare the healthy food to the healthy dog. Now those are related, but not because there's some third thing that they're related to. One of them is related to the other. So there's, in addition to saying these two, these original two senses of healthy are related to one another, healthy food, healthy urine, also healthy food is related to healthy dog, not with reference to a third thing outside of them. So this is the analogy of one to another. The analogy of one to another. Um, I guess this is the one and that's the other. Now, um, it's important, um, 
Oh yeah, that's the last thing I want to say. Um, in all of these cases, it's not just that they're related, but that one of them is primary. One of them is in the driver's seat. And of course, it's obvious enough here, it's the health of the dog. So if you want to explain what healthy dog food is, you have to talk about healthy dogs. Or if you want to talk about healthy dogs, you don't have to actually speak, you don't necessarily have to speak explicitly about their food or about their urine. So the sense of healthy dog, that's the main sense, and it sort of um, is embedded in this other sense. So that's the sense, that's a, a, a way in which it's primary. So that's the primary sense, healthy dog, and then the others are derivative from it. So you've got a primary, they're related, but they're not just related, they're related in a way that makes one primary and the other ones secondary. Anything else you want me to say? Good? Okay. So there we go. Should I erase? No, it's okay. Thank you, Michael. Now that we have these distinctions uh, on the board, we can begin to ask some pretty important questions. And one of the basic things we can ask is if you take a sentence like, um, let's say, God is good. And we might have another one, like, ice cream is good. Is the, term, the question to ask or to consider is, is the term good being used in the same sense in both of these statements? If you think the answer is yes, then you would say that the term is being used univocally, and you would hold that terms are uh, apply univocally between God and creatures, okay? Most people, I think, have a sense just off the bat, and we rely heavily on that sense off the bat, that there's a difference between the way in which God is good and the way in which ice cream is good, okay? They're just not good in the same way. But yet, at the same time, do you want to say that they are so utterly different in meaning in these two statements that they're equivocal or equivocal by chance, meaning they have absolutely nothing to do with each other. If that's how you would go, then it becomes, if that's the way you go, then it becomes difficult to ask the question, well, uh, it becomes difficult to say that when we speak of God, we mean anything at all like what we mean when we're talking about things around us. And where else are we going to get our terms to apply to God except from things around us? If the terms we get from things around us, when we apply them to God, change their meaning so utterly that they become simply equivocal or equivocal by chance, then you can never really say anything of God. Okay? So we have a kind of intuition off the bat, let's just say, by looking at these. They're not univocally used. The term good is not used univocally in these two statements. And likewise, it's not just equivocal either. But it gets even more radical. Let's suppose we say uh, God is good. Uh, God, let's say God knows. Let's compare these. God knows and Socrates knows. Again, you can ask the same question. Does the term know mean the same thing in both of these statements? 
If it means exactly the same thing, then God wouldn't know in any manner greater than a human being, like Socrates. And it seems clearly he does, even if we're just talking about the extent of his knowledge, not even necessarily the mode of it. But when you take into consideration things like the way he knows, then it becomes even clearer that these two terms don't mean the same thing. Um, so we don't want to say that it's univocal. On the other hand, if we say that it's equivocal, that, that when you're saying God knows, you mean something so utterly and completely different from what you mean when you say Socrates knows, that you don't even know what you're saying of God at all, like what the sense of the term is. Okay. So Aquinas holds that when we predicate things like knowledge or perfections of God, those perfections, we originally get them from creatures, but when we apply them to God, they mean something analogous. Okay? Analogous. That's, the, that's sort of a first general statement of what we're talking about. Now, it can go even more, it can become even more radical when you don't think so much about knowledge, but just think about this statement. God is, and Socrates is. Now, we have to ask the same thing. Does the term is mean the same thing in both of these statements? Is God, does he exist in the same sense and in the same mode as Socrates? If you hold that it's univocal, then it would seem like God is what? A limited, finite substance, because that's what Socrates is, and that's what it is for him to be. Uh, but it seems like God is not a limited, finite substance. If we can sort of accept that up, up front, then we might say, yeah, it doesn't mean the same thing. It does not mean the same thing. Socrates is, but he is of a certain kind. He's human. God is, but he's not of a certain kind. He's beyond the ten categories. Okay? Now, that's an important statement I just made. Yesterday, um, Michael gave us the list of the ten categories and, and explained how all the things in the world around us fall into those categories in various ways. They're all in the category of substance, and they have features that are scattered across the categories of accidents. So all the things around us in the world as we experience it belong to those ten categories. Socrates is in those ten categories. He's in the category of substance, and so are, and his properties or accidents are scattered across the other nine. God is not in the category of substance. He's not doesn't have accidents of the kind scattered across those, those, um, those nine categories for reasons that Michael gave yesterday, the actualization of, that would be the actualization of a potency, and there's no potency in God, he's sheer being itself, and other such considerations that Aquinas gives. So God's not in the categories. So you're taking words that originally signify things in the categories, and you're using them to speak of a reality beyond the categories. So what are you saying? Either it means the same thing as it does in the categories, which we don't want to say that, or it means something so totally different that you don't even know what is being said at all. It's utterly equivocal. Okay, Aquinas doesn't want to say that either. What he wants to say is that when we use these divine names, whichever one of them you may choose, 
There is an analogical use of the term phenomenon. Okay? So there's a, a similarity between the being of Socrates and the being of God, and that's sufficient for us to be able to use the word is and to say something of God. But the first thing I want you to do is just get clear on a basic notion, which is that when we apply terms to God, they just don't mean the same thing as when we apply them to things in the categories. That, that's an important point to take in and, and to realize. A great deal of discussion of God, especially in kind of um, pop apologetic sort of contexts, really just sort of takes for granted unquestioningly that when we use words and speak of God, we mean just the same thing as we, as they, as we mean when we're talking about things around us. And Aquinas, as part of a long tradition of thinking about God and trying to speak of God, takes that away from you right off the bat. He, as it were, pulls the rug out from under you. He says, be aware that words don't mean the same thing when you're speaking of God as when you're speaking of things. Okay? But they don't mean something so utterly different that they're simply meaningless to us. There's a basis for saying that there is a kind of similitude or likeness between uh, the terms that we apply to things and what we mean when we're talking about God. What's the, let me give you an analogy. It goes like this. Think about an author who's writing a story. We could think of Tolkien, for example, and uh, his, his writing of The Lord of the Rings. And, and he comes up with, what, a whole world, right? A narrative world, we can call it. So there's the narrative world in which you have the hobbits and the humans and the various things going on in the narrative world of Tolkien. And then you have Tolkien himself, who's not in that world. He's on another plane. He's existing where? In England on the 1950s, and he's going around with C.S. Lewis, and they're going to pubs, and they're drinking beer, and they're doing the things that they do. That's a different world. It's on another plane of existence, so to speak. So there's the world of the author. There's the, the narrative world. And then there's the author's world. Or you could say just simply the author. You can see where this is going. That's analogous in some way to what? To creation or the world of the ten categories, if you will, and God. Okay, so there's an analogy here between these two. Aquinas thinks that analogy, or something like it, holds. Okay? There's a comparability there. So God is on another plane of existence as the things that he gives being to. He's beyond space and time. He's beyond the categories. All things receive their existence from him, they participate in him, but he's on another plane because he's sheer being. He's being itself. He's the inventor of the categories, the author of them, okay? So what are we gonna do? How are we gonna speak? It's, it's almost like trying to use words uh, taken from the narrative world to speak of, of Tolkien or something like that. Yet it's kinda like that. 
So here's one way we could think about it. If we go back to the picture we had earlier, or something like it, if you have the order of contingent being, but now we could call it the world of the categories. The world of the 10 categories. And God exists beyond the categories. He's the author of all of them. What's happening when we try to speak of him is that we take terms drawn from the world of the categories, that is, from the 10 categories, and we apply them to God. Is there a basis for doing so? And what do we mean when we do that? There is a basis for saying that we can apply terms taken from the world of categories to God. What's the basis for saying that? How, how can you even do that? It's because everything in the world of the categories comes from God. He's the author of them. And St. Thomas has a principle, it's a large and uh, an important principle, that every agent makes something similar to itself. That's a principle that's worth writing down, taking note of. Every agent makes something similar to itself. So God, even though he's beyond the world of the categories, when he makes the world, he makes something similar to himself. Every perfection of every creature is in some way similar to him. What that means is a massive question. But we'll just say it for now. I'll get it out there. Everything in the world of the categories, insofar as it's a perfection of things, is like God. Okay? The question is how much, one question is, how much like him is it? And the answer is, even though it's like him a little bit, it's way more unlike him than it is like him. So the things in the world of the categories, the perfections that they have, are like God. And they're unlike God. And they're way more unlike him than like him. But because they're like him a little bit, just a little we can apply those terms to God on the basis of our familiarity with the things in the created order in the world of the categories, okay? So, let's try to spell out then what we might call the doctrine of analogy regarding divine names, okay? The doctrine of analogy regarding divine names. I'm going to spell it out here, and you can write this down if you want. Um, but it's a little bit long-winded. That's okay. You may want to write it down. So let's say this. Here's the doctrine of analogy regarding divine names in particular. Okay? Terms that signify perfections in creatures normally signify one or another feature found in the ten categories. That's the first point. Terms that signify perfections in creatures normally signify one or another feature found in the Ted categories. So you say Socrates knows things, Socrates is wise, uh, Romeo loves, uh, Juliet, these are perfections, and they're signifying things found in the Ten categories. Okay. When the same term, when the same term is applied to God, however, it does not signify a perfection found in the categories. 
When the same term is applied to God, it does not signify a perfection found in the categories, but signifies something analogous or comparable to creatures. When applied to God, terms signify a perfection higher and more eminent than what is found in the categories. When applied to God, terms signify a perfection higher and more eminent than what is found in the categories. All terms shift meaning when applied to God. All terms shift meaning when applied to God. Creatures in the world of the categories have their perfections, and that's what we're accustomed to. And we take those perfection terms, we apply them to God. We say God is good, God knows, God loves, God is wise, God is powerful, or God is power itself. What we are doing when we do that is we're taking those terms found in creatures, we're applying them to God, and we can do so because there is a little bit of likeness between the creatures and God. And there's a little bit of likeness between the creatures and God because God created them, and every agent makes something similar to himself. But we need to also recognize that there is such a massive difference between God and the things in the categories that the terms, when we apply them to God, we don't know exactly what they signify in God. Okay, We only know that they signify something similar but way more to what we're accustomed to in the world around us, okay? So if we go back to what Michael spelled out earlier about the term uh, analogical, we can basically say that what we have going is something analogous to, uh, we would say, healthy and urine. So just as there's health in, say, the dog, and the health in the urine is a sign of the health that's in the dog. So likewise, uh, there's the world of categories, and those are an effect or a sign of the being that's in God, the perfection that's in God. They're a manifestation, okay, of, the, of, what, it, of what God is. But every manifestation of what God is falls short of being God, okay, himself. I mean, unless it's God himself manifesting himself like in the incarnate word. But every created manifestation is going to fall short. Okay? All right, so what this means is that we need to become accustomed to, uh, how shall we say it, realizing that our words don't mean the same thing when applied to God. This doctrine of analogy regarding divine names can leave people feeling rather uh, ill at ease or off balance. How can you even talk about God? There, there's a, a you, when you apply words, you don't mean the same thing. What are you even saying? How do you know what you're saying and, and what's being said? That's one of the effects I think Aquinas wants you to have and experience. Because what it does is help you realize you and I don't know God. We don't yet have the beatific vision. We don't see the essence of God. We can apply words to God. We can form true propositions about God. We can do so for good reasons in natural theology, given in natural theology. But 
part of natural theology is realizing that the terms mean something way different than what they normally mean when applied to creatures. Is there a way that we could systematically um, spell out how things shift meaning? Yes, there is a way that comes from pseudo-Dionysius that Aquinas takes over, and we can describe it as a kind of three-step purification process, like the purification of the meanings of our terms. There's like a three-step, we'll call it purification process, that keeps you and I from thinking, that's it, I understand God, I get it, I have figured God out. Here's how it works, you see. So, there's a three-step process. In the first step, we make an affirmation about God. So we say, X is F, where God is F, where F is some sort of feature, but I don't mean like uh, it, that F belongs to God in the manner of an accident belonging to a created substance. It's just simply a predicate or a name that's applied here, okay? What is means is one of the great questions. What's the basis for applying F to God? There's some uh, reason in natural theology. Okay, some, some causal reasoning usually going from effect to cause. Reasoning from effect to cause. The way of causality, us uh, pseudo-Dionysius called it. At least some of the divine names are that way, by reasoning from effect to cause. But then there's a second moment that needs to happen where you say something like X is not F. Okay? X being understood, maybe I should just say God, right? Sorry about that. So God is F, God is not F. Okay, here what you're doing is you're saying something like, in the same sense, as creatures. Then there's a third moment. The second moment is critical, sometimes called the negative way, where we deny of God terms, um, or, and we deny that they mean the same thing when applied to God as when applied to creatures. Okay? So, so far we might say something like this. God is good. Why do you say that God is good? Well, the world around us is good, and uh, every effect is proportionate to its cause, so um, God must be good in some way. He's the cause of all things. He's good. Okay. But God is not good. That's what gives people pause. <laughs> God is not good in the same sense of the term as all the goodness of the creatures around us. He's not good in that finite, limited, mutable, conditional, like susceptible to evil and imperfection kind of way. Now, at that point, you're probably feeling nervous because we're at this negative moment. Then you say, okay, but God is F. God is good. Okay, good. But in what sense? We've already gone through the second step where we've kind of purified the term of creaturely uh, senses, and we can say God is good what? In a higher and better way or more eminent, a higher 
and more eminent way. So this is sometimes called the way of eminence. So I want to suggest a certain exercise you can go through. Let's take, take some of these divine names and let's run them through our three-step purification process. It's actually quite a good philosophical, theological, and spiritual exercise. So, okay, so God is, uh, God knows things, okay? Or God knows, you just leave it at that, God knows. Okay, God knows. Why do you say that? Well, Aquinas has his arguments for saying this, he's an immaterial being, and whatever is immaterial is, is cognitive, he's got these principles that he works with, so he makes his, his argument, okay? All right, God knows, but God does not know. He doesn't know in the creaturely sense, or in the creaturely way. He doesn't know like Socrates or Plato or Aristotle. He doesn't know in that way, like we could say, I almost said at all. But there's a little bit of likeness. Why is this important to think about? Here's a, here's a reason why. It's pretty common in contemporary philosophy of religion for philosophers to do things like talk about God's belief set say God has a certain belief set or the propositions in the mind of God. You know, what is that? That seems to be a gigantic anthropomorphism. Like you're attributing creaturely modes of knowing to God, which is exactly what Dionysius and Aquinas say you can't do. So God knows, but God does not know in the sense that he has a big belief set in his head or all states of affairs are in his mind or he's, you know, computing all these things. Because people then start to say, yeah, God must be infinitely complex. And yeah, just they haven't gone through the via negativa. But then, okay, so God doesn't know. He doesn't know in any of the ways around us that we're familiar with. He doesn't know by judgment. He doesn't know by reasoning. He doesn't know by imagining. He doesn't know by sensation. He doesn't know by changing in any way whatsoever. Then you're left thinking, well, in what way does he know at all. Does he know? God does know, but in a manner way beyond or way more than knowledge as we're familiar with it in our world. We can do the same with any one of these others. Here's a particularly good one. Cause. God causes. God is a cause or God causes things. Sure, he does. How do we know this? By reasoning from effect to cause, right? We, there's the creatures around us, there's contingent beings. They must receive their being from something else, so we rise up. There's a necessary being, the source, the, the metaphysical fountain we were talking about earlier. So they receive their being from him. So he's, he's a cause. He's the cause of being, all right? But God is not a cause in the sense that we're familiar with in the world around us. He's not a cause that's subject to time. He's not a caused cause. He's, yeah, absolutely uncaused, all of that. He's not subject to the same sort of conditions of causes in the world around us. Um, he's beyond our spatio-temporal frameworks, and he's the author of all of them, okay? So he's a cause in that way. Okay, what, what is that? Well, that we don't, we're not, we don't know. We don't know the essence of God to know what that is in itself. But God is a cause in what? A higher and more eminent way as being this kind of what? 
all we can do is maybe grope for a term, say something like this fountain, a metaphysical fountain of being. Okay? So these are uh, terms that we can, this is a process we can use with any term that we apply to God. Okay? Why is this important? Something like this. Uh, all, the cre- all the perfections that we find in, in creatures, we can apply to God. We can do so, but we want to do so with a kind of conscious awareness that everything needs to be run through this process. Everything needs to be run through this process. Okay? All of the perfections of creatures are pre-contained in God and can be applied to him so long as we run it through this three-step purification process. If you don't run it through this three-step purification process, you'll end up attributing all sorts of creaturely features to God in a, in a univocal kind of way. Okay? 